Friends, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 15, the end of the chapter will be our key text this morning. Now we're going to reference uh, an, uh, another uh, number of scriptures and you have those on your sermon outlines and further scriptures that I will mention to you along the way as we take up this issue of the role of women the role of women, particularly in the church, as we follow along our sermon series, My True Child, the instructions from the Apostle Paul to his son in the ministry, Timothy, about how to be the church. So uh, I want to draw your attention to our scripture memory verse for the month, and go ahead and get Chris to put that on the big screen for you, and it's on the top of your sermon outline. And that'll give us a principle to guide us in our understanding as we go. So let's say that together. 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 1 Timothy 4.12. Now here's our principle that we gather from this. Timothy couldn't do anything about his age. He had nothing to determine when he was born, just like we can't. We can't determine where we were born, what nationality or ethnicity. We can't determine whether we're male or female. And the principle from Scripture is don't let let anyone look down on you because of things you cannot change, but be an example for others in how you live. So it's not whether you're young or old, it's not whether you're male or female, it's not whether you're uh, this ethnicity or that one, but set an example for others in how you live. That idea of how we live in relation to others because of Jesus will guide us the rest of the way through this scripture today. When we consider this idea of the role of women in ministry, we have to keep in mind a couple different major viewpoints. And I'm right away into your sermon outline, so if you're not looking at it, you're going to want to look at it now. And there are two major biblical gender role viewpoints, and the one is called, I got uh, complementarian first, don't I, Chris? The complementarian view. Now, notice how that's spelled, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N. Okay, so that's compliment like go along with, not compliment like, hey, that's a really nice shirt. That has an I in the middle of it. The complimentary view, complementarian view that women compliment, not compete with men. So that view is a view that is generally held by those who are more biblically conservative, like we are as evangelical believers, and sometimes uh, the majority of Catholics might hold that view, the complementarian view, that we complement or complete one another. We fill in one another's gaps. We have gifts, strengths, and abilities that the other gender does not have. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, and I'm going to use this rail, this is supposed to look you know, like a skate park, and this is a grinding rail, what they call it. I'm not going to across it because that would be disastrous, and we'd have a workers' comp claim. But So on the one side here, we've got the complementarian view. All the way on the other end of this continuum is the egalitarian view, that women are equal to men in all ways and roles. Women are equal, egalitarian, from that uh, Latin word that we get equal from, in all ways and all roles. And just as you can see that there's 
One, two, three, four, five little supports holding up this artificial rail here that's for a vacation Bible school decoration. You could say that you could be all the way on this side of your view of full-on complementarian, or you could be all the way egalitarian, or you could be a little this way or a little that way or somewhere right in the middle. And so our hope today is to come to Scripture and let Scripture tell us where we ought to land. Because, friends, in the world we live in, the way that we have elevated self almost to a cult of self and what feels good and what I think and what I want, sometimes Scripture gets put down below self. But we need to remember, and that's why we feature the teaching of the Bible as a part of our worship service every Sunday, is that God's Word is our authority. Amen? And we've got to be careful even when handling God's Word and interpreting God's Word that we don't let our opinions or our ideas overshadow God's Word. And that's where I have laid forth uh, seven other scriptures we need to consider, even though I'm going to hit them really quickly this morning, that help give a broader perspective of this issue. And so we'll get there in just a minute. But God's Word as our guide as we consider from either of these two sides. So, when we come to our passage of Scripture this morning, and by way of introduction, and we'll read it in just a moment, we need to keep in mind that peace is the guiding and operative one-word summary theme of this passage of Scripture, uh, the entirety of chapter 2. And if you weren't here last week, you can listen to my sermon on verses 1 through 8. The question is, Peace without contention in what manner, however? And so we come to a standard of biblical interpretation, a standard of all hermeneutics, no matter what you're trying to understand, and that is context. Context, you might write that down. A standard of hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics in specific, is context. So if you pick just one scripture out and hold it up and say, I'm going to build my theology on this one scripture, you can be in danger you need to put that scripture back down in the context of which it was written, both the other scriptures around it, the chapter around it, the book that it's in, and the best historical understanding uh, of what was going on in that place and that time, context. So that's a key for hermeneutics is for us to understand the context. So when we look at chapter 2, we see what the context is. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 are really instructions on how to pray together, how to do life together as a gathered church body. And verses 8 through 15 speak more specifically about uh, both the appearance and demeanor of those praying. You remember we ended last week's sermon with verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, even that one verse gives us some indication that the church at Ephesus had been a contentious place, that there had been anger and there had been disputing even within the church. We know as we look uh, back a few sermons, and we're going to get it again in a few sermons, that the major issue in the church at Ephesus was false teachers. I use the phrase of fake gospel. People that were probably Judaizers, but it could be something else, that were coming and saying, no, no, it's not just like Paul said, it's like this. You need to do it this way. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, his son in the ministry, who he's left as the pastor of the church at Ephesus, saying, here are the things you need to be aware of. Here's how you need to conduct yourself, but here's how you need to ask the believers in the church to conduct one, uh, themselves in relation to one another. So come back to verse 8. I want men everywhere, so I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Our key text for today is about to follow. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Remember that it was not the fact that the hands were lifted that made them holy. Are your hands any more holy based on where you put them? No. It is the heart and the mind, the character of the person lifting those hands that makes them holy as they have been washed by the blood of Jesus and set free from all the hindrances of this world. And so that holiness and peace of God should reign above everything here. And then Paul comes to talk about the role of women in the ministry of the church at Ephesus. Part of what we need to decide is what he is saying, is it just specific to Exodus or Ephesus, excuse me, contextual and for that one time to that church, or is it more general and broad, and does it apply to all churches at all time? Now, you can guess that the complementarians would say these rules in First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15 apply to all churches at all times. And you could guess that the egalitarians on the other side would say, no, the things that Paul says here only apply to the church at Ephesus and only at that time. And then, of course, some people would say, well, some of them apply and some of them don't. Others would say, I don't know. I mean, you go right down the continuum, right? So if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you do that as we read our key text 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Paul says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, but it was woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. Let's pray. God, our Father... If we just read that passage of Scripture out of context and we didn't think more deeply about what it means and where it comes from and how it might apply today, we could certainly say the Apostle Paul was just a terrible chauvinist. We could say all kinds of other th ugly things about him as well, but we know that there's more to it than that. And through study and through submission to your word and by your Holy Spirit, we want to come to a fuller understanding of what Paul's saying here and how it applies to us today. So God, we ask you, would you speak to us on this important issue for our church and our world? We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So remember, I told you there's two keys to hermeneutics. The first one is context. 
We talked just briefly about the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Timothy as a whole. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the second one, when it comes specifically to the Bible, is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. You need to write that down. The second key of hermeneutics is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That any time we look at any doctrinal or theological understanding, we should not just lift it up and elevate it alone, but we should say, okay, this scripture speaks about this topic. What other scriptures throughout the Bible speak about this topic? Well, here's some here that the same author wrote. Here's some here that are in the same part of the Bible. Here's some here uh, uh, that have the same idea. And here's every use of that topic or that doctrine, that theology throughout the entire Bible. And so we look closer, a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further for that entire scripture, that entire theme throughout the Bible. And that's how we build a theology that is not heretical. Now you understand heretical means heresy. That means false teaching. That's bad, right? And what happens so often is that a church led by a single pastor or even a denomination might lift up a certain idea, a certain scripture, and they ignore the rest and then they get off into heresy. It's dangerous. The easy one for us to pick on that's not as popular today, but certainly was years ago, is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And uh, I've seen it as the meme now that there's the pastor who thinks he needs a $54 million jet to go spread the gospel. Hello? His gospel is a fake gospel. It's heresy. He's lifted a few scriptures out and says, this is what God intends for us, and not paid attention to all scriptures. So let's come back to our issue today, and that's the role of women in the church. And look at seven scriptures, key scriptures that speak to that. And I'm going to hit them very quickly, but then you'll have them where you can go back and you can read that and read the context there and get a broader understanding yourself. That's my intent here. So the first one is Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16. And that speaks about the authority in the marriage relationship. Chris will get that up on the screen. Genesis 3.16. Authority in the marriage relationship. Now, why is that important if we're talking about the role of women? Well, as God created it, the family was the first social institution. The first place where one person and another person got together to do something together was the family. And if we're going to understand God's role for men and women anywhere, we've got to look at it in the family first. And so that scripture uh, lays that out. Now, it's a result of the fall, that one, so that you even got to look beyond that, but in Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 up to verse 16, to establish the roles of men and women even before the fall. The second scripture we need to consider is Romans 16, 1 and 2, and that's authority of women in church, authority of women in church. That one, if you were to turn over and look at it very quickly, it mentions a lady named Phoebe. And depending on your translation of Scripture, it may say that she is a deacon in the church. Some Scriptures say she is a servant in the church. It is the same Greek word, diakonos, can be translated servant or can be translated as deacon. But it depends on the translator in the way they give it. Do they give it to her as a title, a deacon that's also an office in the church? Or do they give it a little less meaning, saying she's a servant? Still a good thing. But then it also says in the end of verse 2 that she is a benefactor. And there's a great understanding and debate about what that means, that she helped 
Paul, and then you look at the role that he gave her, my conclusion in study of Phoebe was, in fact, that that lady was ordained as a deacon in the church and had the role of deacon, not just the title of servant. And so uh, uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, gives us a picture of the authority of women in the local church. The next passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, talks about maturity in relationships and worship. Now, if you go to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, have yourself a whole white sheet of paper. Do some research, if you don't remember, on how to diagram sentences, and good luck with that, okay? That is as Pauline as a passage as there has ever been. It's this one long rambling sentence with all these different parts, and it makes people cry when they try to interpret it, right? It's uh, very convoluted. So he talks about the head of a woman and covering the head, and is, 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 is this figurative or is this literal? And there are all sorts of debates surrounding this passage of Scripture. Now, we're not dealing with that passage of Scripture today, but I am pointing to it as a key in our understanding today that it talks about the the maturity in with which we relate to one another as men and women who are believers in Jesus. The next one, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 through 35, that one does not appear to be authoritative. Now remember when I did my doctoral research three and a half years ago, and if you were here, and I preached a sermon series on these that was uh, four or five sermons, and Chris uh, got a link for those. It'll be in your newsletter that should come out maybe tomorrow, Becky, or Wednesday or something like that. So if you don't already subscribe to the church newsletter, here's your commercial, you know, go to southviewbaptist.org backslash newsletter, subscribe, and uh, then you'll have the link to listen to all those sermons where we go much more in depth on this topic of the role of women. You got four or five sermons rather than one. But this passage of Scripture, where I say it does not appear to be authoritative, you're going, hey, wait a second, Pastor. You just told us a few minutes ago we need to base all our decisions on Scripture. Now you're telling us this one's not authoritative? Yes. Even conservative biblical scholars believe that some editor later put that three verses in based on syntax, based on grammar. And then, of course, you could go, whoa, slippery slope. What other parts of the Bible can we not agree with? What other parts of the Bible do we not understand? Um, there's only a few passages of Scripture in the entire New Testament that have such debate. I'd say three, maybe. And this is one of them. But here's the thing. What that passage of Scripture said, whether it's authoritative or not, does not significantly change the argument here one way or the other. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 through 35. Your fifth passage of Scripture you need to consider is Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28. Now, that one I'm actually going to turn over to and invite you to turn over a couple pages to the left, if you will, in your Bible. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 Galatians 3.28 has been coined the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. The Magna Carta of Christian freedom. And it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you look at that and you go, Wow, we're all the same, we're all unified. 
And so when we come back to our spectrum here, and you've got the complementarians on the one side and the egalitarians on the other side, the egalitarians that want the roles of men and women to be equal in all things hold that Scripture above, above all Scriptures, and they say, uh, Galatians 3.28 trumps every other Scripture you've got. It trumps every other argument you've got. But I think they've got a faulty premise. That scripture is not about authority in the church, which is what our issue is here when we talk about the role of women in the church. It's authority at the bottom of it. That scripture is about our theological position in Christ. And so if you base your argument on a faulty premise, your argument crumbles. So we've got to pay attention to Galatians 3.28, but I don't think we can give it trump card status. The sixth scripture is the one we're dealing with today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 15. And that's instructions for peace and worship. Remember, I told you the operative idea, if you come back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, is that in their prayers and in their worship together, there would be peacefulness. The way they got along and worshiped together. We'll deal more deeply with it in just a moment. And then the seventh scripture is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 13, and those are offices in the local church. Now, I'll give you just a brief commercial and then tell you come back next week, right? Because next week, we're dealing with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. But uh, turn your eyes with me to chapter 3. Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, an elder, a pastor... He desires a noble task. And so he talks there through verses 1 through 7 about an overseer, an elder, a pastor. Then look in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, should be men worthy of respect. And he talks about deacons that are men. Verse 8, 9, and 10. But then look at verse 11. In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything, And then verse 12, you go back to a deacon must be the husband of one wife. We'll go back next week and we'll look at in a historical theological approach, even in the way Scripture is translated, that the word in verse 11, in the same way their wives, is not actually the word most often translated wives, but the word should be translated women. And my theological understanding is that that is talking about women who are office holders in the church as deacons. We'll talk further about that next week. But the offices in the local church. So we have these seven different scriptures to look at the entirety of scripture and say, how do these weigh into understanding this idea of the role of women in church? So everybody with me so far? All right. That was a long introduction to get us to our point where we need to be. But we needed to go there because this um, is so important for us based on our culture today. So here's the third major portion of your outline today, and that is the five A insights from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Now, nobody else coined this 5A thing. That's just me looking at it going, hey, this kind of works. So here's the first one. Is attire and actions of women in public worship. The attire and actions of women in public worship. So now that we've come to our key text, now that we have at least a brief view and introduction of the other texts that speak to us about the role of women in the church. We come to our key text and we see where Paul goes, verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly 
with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So he's talking about how a woman would adorn herself and how she would act in worship, attire and actions in worship. Here's the short translation of this passage. Nothing about outward appearance or personal presentation should detract from worship. Amen? Nothing about outward appearance or personal... What was the word? Presentation should detract from worship. The same would go for any man in worship. That a man should not dress in such a way as that he would detract from worship. I'm sure if a man came in dressed provocatively... Um, all of us would be going, whoa, I'm not so sure about him. I mean, whether you're male or female, but Paul is speaking about the role of women, and we'll see why here uh, in a moment. These teachings really can be understand that they should have not elaborate hairstyles, but neat hairstyles. Not expensive clothing, but nice clothing. Not a selfish distraction, but selfless surrender. It may have been that in the church in Ephesus, there were some ladies who were really asserting themselves in a way that was detrimental to the peace of the church. And that Paul was writing specifically to those ladies. That's what the egalitarians would say. The complementarians on the other side would point out that Ephesus was the hub of the worship of the goddess Artemis. And the goddess Artemis was known, and the worship of her involved all sorts of sexual type things, and even the appearance of ladies that were priestesses, temple prostitutes, for that religion had a certain way that they dressed. And Paul is saying, you ladies, once you become followers of Jesus, you don't need to look like that anymore. You don't need to adorn yourself a certain way and mislead men. Because what would happen would be ladies that dressed that way, that were priestesses for that religion, would go out into the streets and basically beckon men to come with them to this place of worship and do these acts. Paul was saying to them, church ladies, sisters in Jesus, when you get saved... You don't need to look like that anymore, and you don't need to be leading men to your place of worship, even though we know it's Jesus, and Jesus is not Artemis, and Jesus is the Son of the one true God. Beware that you look too much like your culture. Beware that you mislead people. We've got to be careful about how we look and how we act in worship. And we've got to understand the context of this passage here, the temple worship of Artemis and Ephesus, to understand its meaning then, to know its meaning now, that we should not be provocative in the way we present ourselves and the way we act. When we come to worship, it is not to glorify ourselves by how we look or what we do, but to glorify God. Amen? And that's the bottom line here for Verses 9 and 10. So whether it's women or men, either one, it's about our outward appearance and our personal presentation that shouldn't detract 
from worship. Let's move on to your second major point. Your second major point is the attitude of women as learners in the church. Go back and read verse 11 with me. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, this is about the point where we go, wait a second, Paul. What are you talking about, buddy? Ladies in my church talk. We got a lady, you know, that does this, a lady that does that. They are gifted. They are called. And I know that they are submitted to Jesus and they're not ruling it over. I mean, what are you talking about, Paul? And that's, that's normal. But let's look a little more closely. Dr. Tommy Lee notes that the early church in worship was most likely a whole lot different than what we're used to. The early church in worship would be like some third world churches today and some churches of other denominations where there wouldn't be one pastor and primary speaker, but there would be many speakers. It wouldn't be somebody with a theological degree, but somebody that feels like the Spirit moves them or they have some understanding. And so that many speakers can be speaking on many different topics And the manner in which they pray might be different. The lifting up holy hands in prayer, the commentators tell us that uh, there was a manner in which they prayed with their hands up, but also the way they went about uh, with their attitude in prayer. And I gave you the example of praying when I first got to Africa last week. Uh, I didn't get to Africa last week, but I gave you the example last week of how they basically yelled and screamed and, you know, I'm just overwhelmed because I wasn't used to it. That... The early church and worship would be really quite confusing and different from what we're used to. You see a description of that, and write this down, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. So you can go read that later, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 through 33, and you get an idea of how disorderly worship was. Indeed, uh, it would be a challenge for most of us to worship in a place like that. But notice there's a transition here. Notice in verse 9, it says, I also want women. Verse 10, it says, women. And verse 11, a woman. The transition from the plural to the singular tells us that what's to follow is a general instruction for all. That any woman who hears this. So what does it say? In my NIV, it says that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Some might translate it as silence and full submission. And then there's that idea of should learn. The phrase there, should learn, means receive instruction. Uh, And it's an imperative form of uh, the word uh, to to be like a disciple, manthano. This is a command. And a woman is commanded, not suggested, to be a disciple, to be a learner. But it's the next verse that helps us get a broader understanding of it. Silence and quiet, however. Let's come back to those. They translate heshikia that indicates an attitude or a spirit that was teachable. So it's not complete silence but a quietness of spirit, able to learn. You might want to write that one down. The attitude of women as learners in the church was not complete silence, but a quietness of spirit, able to learn. 
So what verse 11 is doing is really adding decorum to the manner in which the prayers and prophecies that took place in a public worship service should be offered. And so we come on that we've got to take caution in exercising, judging the bounds of such command. Who was it for? How was it applied? And is submission applied to every woman in every situation the same way? Because that's our last phrase, and full submission. Or is it applied just in this situation in Ephesus? Or is it applied in every situation in public worship? We'll get a little further understanding of the answer to that question as we move ahead to our third question. Our third, uh, uh, excuse me, our fourth A, but your third point. So verse 9 and 10 about the attitude and actions. And then verse 11 about the attitude. And then verse 12, authority in the church. Authority in the church. Remember the key operative word to this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, is peace. That there should be peacefulness in worship. And that peacefulness finds its challenge in the authority of the church. Who is in charge and what can and should they say and do in a worship situation of a gathered public worship full of men and women both? Verse 12 is the decisive verse when it comes to women in ministry. You might want to write that down. This whole idea and the seven passages of Scripture I told you about, you need a broad understanding of all of them. In my opinion, in the opinion of most scholars, everything comes down to your understanding of verse 12. I didn't want to admit that when I first started studying that until I got really deep in these things. And I went, whoa, it does come down to verse 12. So, We'll take more time on verse 12 based on its importance. Verse 12 interprets its predecessors and adds another layer of complexity with four different phrases. So let's look at these four different phrases, and you might need to add to your notes somewhere else. The first is, I do not allow. Paul says there in verse 12, and I'll read it for you now from my NIV, I do not permit, my NIV says, a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be silent. We're going to deal with each of these phrases. Let's do with the first one. The first one is, I do not permit or I do not allow. Is this Paul speaking personally, just himself? I do not allow. The egalitarians would say, it's just Paul's opinion. Paul's saying, I do not allow. The complementarians would say, "Um, Paul's an apostle. He's writing under the authority uh, an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what he says, when he says, I do not allow, that applies for all of us. And then anywhere in the middle, right? So Paul says, I do not allow. And keep in mind, it's deeper than that. Those egalitarians see it as a present active indicative tense. So it's not clearly a universal command uh, as the imperative tense would be. But it's Paul speaking. So one can see the proponents lining up already, right? Egalitarian proponents. Uh, complementarian, but let's look at the second phrase. The second phrase is a woman to teach. A woman to teach. Now, a major emphasis of the pastoral epistles is doctrine. And their Greek word there is didaskalia. 
And it necessitates a reliable teacher. If you're going to teach good doctrine, you've got to have a good teacher. The verb form here must be understood to mean authoritative teaching, since the noun form in various formulations refers to authoritative apostolic gospel. So the question is, would this prohibit a woman from teaching a co-educational Sunday school class? Would it mean a woman can't teach in a home? Would it mean that a woman can't teach in a small group? Would it mean that she can't teach anytime any men are present? Some would say, and it appears to be limited to, the church gathered in worship. Others counter and say that the present tense of this verb indicates it to signify a role that is a role of a teacher. Like, I don't permit a woman to be a teacher. So this can be understood not as a total prohibition on women teaching or even preaching before the gathered church, but in teaching in the authoritative role of pastor is the other understanding. I mean, it's all down this spectrum from full-on complementarian to egalitarian. And I've got you thoroughly confused now, right? There's all these different opinions of this role because it's so important. But the use of the errorist infinitive, so this, it's happened and it's still happening, is indicative of an eventual or particular action. Teaching. To be a teacher. So we've got to ask our question here, though. If Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, why should women not teach? Well, in Ephesus, it was a hedge against the Artemis cult. It was a warning because of the ladies who appeared to be false teachers in a fake gospel teaching in that church. So Paul adds a third phrase to it that helps round out and complete our understanding. And that third phrase, going back to your scripture, in verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, is, or to have authority over a man. What does Paul mean there? So if you pair the prohibition to teaching, I do not permit a woman to teach, and you add to that, or to have authority over a man, any of us can see the controversy, right? I mean, you're probably sitting on the edge of your seat now going, all right, what's Pastor Aaron going to do with this? Let's see him get out of this one. So this word, or to have authority, presents us a challenge. It's a hapax legomenon. And that means it only appears one time in the entire New Testament. So we can't look at that word and say, how did Paul use it here? How did a gospel writer use it here? How did somebody else use it? It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. So we have a bit of an issue. So you have to look outside of Scripture to extra-biblical literature and say, in the literature at that time, how was that word used? And it adds to our understanding, but it's not authoritative like Scripture, right? And that word means to assume authority, and it could mean all the way to domineer or to usurp authority or even abuse authority when you look at extra-biblical literature for that word, right? It, it could be a very strong word. But for whatever reason, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul chose to use that word and that word only, not another word that's used commonly for exercise authority in the New Testament. And so you could look at this. Let's go back to our English Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. You could look at this as a neither nor. She can't teach nor have authority. You could look at it as an either or. But there's a middle ground there. 
And we'll get there in just a minute. We've got to get to the fourth and final phrase. The fourth and final phrase is, she must be silent. Again, the word here for silence or quietness enters the discussion. But remember, it doesn't mean complete silence. It's a quietness of spirit. It's what you guys are doing right now. You guys do me the great courtesy week in, week out of, in general, listening to me quietly in a spirit of quietness. I realize there's some talking that goes on in the pews. And, you know, especially if you've got a child in the pew, you've got to do some parenting in the pews. I realize you've got to comment with your spouse or the person sitting next to you. There's nothing wrong with that. But in general, you're sitting in order to receive instruction. And so you're demonstrating the principle here that Paul is talking about that women, and I would say by extension all of us, men included, need to demonstrate. What verses 11 and 12 point out is the contrast and the encouragement of women teaching within public worship as uh, women um, participating in public worship. The, uh, the applicability of these exhortations extends beyond the situation in Ephesus is where the debate ranges. Is this just talking about Ephesus, the egalitarians would say, or no, it applies to all of us, even today, the complementarians would say. So here's where we come to the middle in my understanding. It's in verse 12. When we draw attention to the present tense of the Greek verb in verse 12 as referring to an ongoing action, it literally would mean, I do not continue, or I continually do not permit. That teach and exercise authority, those two phrases, are handled as one in the Greek, and it's called a hendiadis. And I don't have my uh, whiteboard up here to write it for you, but it's an H-E-N, like a, a chicken, a hen. Hen, dia, D-I-A-D-Y-S, hen dietis. And that hen dietis is where two concepts, teach and have authority, are understood as one thing. And so when you consider what the New Testament tells us about a role in the church in which a given person is to teach and to have authority over the church, what does that sound like to you? A pastor, right? An elder, an overseer, a pastor. And that's the understanding and study that I came down to. Is what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and we can back it up with the other scriptures we looked at, is that he's not permitting that women take the role of pastor. Now, some folks would debate with me on that. There's going to be some on this. Uh, everybody on the complementarian side would agree with me, although they wouldn't agree with me about women as deacons. No, they wouldn't if they're way over there. I'm going to step this way. But the egalitarians would say, no, no, that's not it at all. So there is debate. I've made that clear. Complementarian, egalitarian, and everything in between. But I've got to tell you where I came down and why I came down on that position is the fact that I believe based on an understanding theological, theologically of that phrase, teacher have authority over a man as a hendiatus, two concepts meaning one thing, therefore he's speaking about women being a pastor. We'll get to where that leaves us in a few minutes. 
let's look at our last point. The last point is the argument from creation. The argument from creation. That's the fifth of our A's, our fourth point there. Paul, um, as he so often does, looks back to illustrate something. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, but the woman. But uh, the woman will be saved through childbearing, and uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. I will just say, verse 15 has its theological problems of its own. Is it talking about, uh, you know, uh, childbearing that her children will get saved? Or is it talking the act of childbearing? What does that say about a lady who does not or who cannot have a child? Uh, Yeah, you've got to look at all of Scripture, not just take that one Scripture out of context and say, well, this is a terrible thing because this could, could condemn women. But what Paul is doing here is he's making an argument from creation order to say this is the way it should be because it's the way it's been from Genesis up to this point. So if we draw the comment of this passage to a close, it's got to be noted that the beliefs of Christ's followers are demonstrated by their actions. Look back at your passage of Scripture. Verse 8, it says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. He says, I want women, in verse 9, to dress modestly with decency, not with braid and their, uh, gold braids and so on. And then verse 15, to be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, hope, love, and propriety. It's about self-control. It's about Christian character that is in action. That the hallmarks of our Christianity should be how we behave. Not our gender, not our age. Not where we come from. So, as I come down to the bottom of how this applies for us, my understanding, based on study, is that women cannot and should not be pastors. I realize there are entire denominations with churches led by ladies that are pastors. That's their church and that's their decision. That's not my understanding based on Scripture. But this passage, in my opinion, does not, however, prohibit women from exercising their free, their gifts in non-authoritative ways. To have a woman lead in worship, to have a woman teach in a co-educational class with men of any age, and even to have a woman preach if we so chose, not in the role of pastor, but as a guest preacher. I do not believe this passage prohibits that. Nor does it prohibit women from serving and being deacons as an office in the church. That's my understanding, based on my study. And that's how I want to apply it in our church. And yes, there may be some debate in how you see it and why you see it. But I would just say, let's be careful Not to take our debate from the pages of our culture, but from the pages of Scripture. What does the Bible understand when we look at it broadly to get a broad understanding of this topic as any topic? And how then should we respond to the Bible and let the Bible dictate our understanding rather than let our culture or our feelings dictate our understanding? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it's not every day we take up an issue like that one.
And sometimes it feels a little bit more like a theological lecture than a sermon that we're used to. But we know that we need to have understanding of things that uh, apply to us and the world we live in. And we thank you that your word tells us these things. And that we don't have to be confused or wondered. And even though there is some debate, and even though there are all sorts of really scholarly folks on either side and everywhere in the middle, that through careful study, we can say, here's what we believe and here's why. But Father, just as our Scripture of the Month teaches us, and just as this passage as a whole dealt with the issue of peace, may we be reminded at the same time that our self-control to demonstrate the grace which we've received from you to others that we may disagree with is the key here. That it is how we hold the opinions that we hold. It is how we handle the doctrines that we believe that may make the greatest difference in the world we live in. That we can disagree without being disagreeable. That above all things, we can honor and love others no matter their opinions or their beliefs. So, Father, I pray that you guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that you would help us to remember the ideas of self-control and of peace, of grace and of love, and that on this issue and other issues, you would continue to grow our understanding as we submit ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.